0: Plus, it comes with a powerful set of tools that allows you to do stuff like skip over non-essential text, but also take notes with one click. Your life just got a lot easier. Normally, you'd get a two-week free trial, but listeners of Longform get a whole month free. Go to listening.com slash longform or use code longform at checkout.
1: Your body is unique. So why would you settle for a weight loss plan that's one size fits all? Noom is the weight management program that takes into account your biology to build a custom plan just for you. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com and check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Long Form Podcast. I'm Evan Ratliff, co-host of the show, along with Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer. Aaron Lammer, recently the subject of a profile in Bloomberg. How you guys doing?
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for saying that. Now we get to put it in the show notes. That article is amazing, and I feel like- How dare you. I've heard from dozens of people in my life who are just like, Aaron Lammer, the world's most interesting man? (laughs) Please, this segment can't end soon enough. (laughs) Who's on the show this week? For today's show, I spoke to Emily Oster. She
2: is a professor of economics at Brown, but maybe more well-known to our audience as the author of three books, including Expecting Better, which is about pregnancy, and then two more about parenting, uh, Crib Sheet, and most recently, the one that just came out is called The Family Firm. I don't know if you guys know, but I, I like the occasional parenting book. I don't mind a little parenting advice. And a lot of those books are truly terrible, but I have found hers to be the exception to that. She focuses on using her economics perspective, her understanding of how data is applied to look at a lot of issues around both pregnancy and parenting. And she has a newsletter called Parent Data, which she's been doing since 2020, but it turned out to be almost exclusively about COVID and kids. So she's kind of experienced the maelstrom of criticism that comes with writing about that topic. And we talked a lot about that. We talked about being an academic and writing for a popular audience and a bunch of other stuff. It was a great conversation.
0: I was exposed to some of her uh, birth related content by my partner, and uh, it's basically the only child related content I've ever consumed. So it's deeply affected my worldview, Uh, and I'm really looking forward to this interview. she debunked uh, several notions uh, I had about what you're supposed to do uh, around uh, childbirthing. So I'm looking forward to this one. Oh, by the way, we are uh, produced in partnership with Vox Media. They help us make the show. We thank them for it. Thanks, Vox. Now here's Evan with Emily Oster.
2: Emily, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's great to meet you.
3: I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me.
2: My pleasure. I am a reader of your books. I'm a natural reader of your books. I didn't read your books just for this show. <laughs> I'm in-the-wild reader of the books. So I've, I've been very eager to have you on, and I want to talk about, in particular the first and the third book and your process around thinking through these issues. If you don't mind, I wanted to start by going further back how you got into academia in the first place. And it's often noted in interviews with you and stories about you that you are the child of two Yale economics professors. Do you ever think about what your parents did or didn't do to cause you to follow their path rather than sort of reject their path?
3: So I think one piece is that my parents really liked their job. And I think a second piece is that for many people, the idea of being an academic is a kind of a weird job like it isn't a thing that sort of occurs to you like doctor or lawyer or accountant or something that you see in the in the world and so there was a piece of it which undoubtedly is just i knew that this was a job option and you know the children of academics i think have to be more likely to become academics for some of those reasons and some other reasons, but I'm not sure there was anything else specific other than some kind of genetic link to enjoying (laughs) doing research and the fact that this is a good job that they enjoyed.
2: When you started sort of moving into academia, what part of it most appealed to you?
3: The thing that I like, it's still the thing that I like the best, is the moment when you know something and other people don't. And the moment of discovery and whatever academic field you're in, you know, if you're lucky, you don't get a lot of those moments, but they are the things that sustain you. And that was always the thing that I liked the best. It was always the thing that sustained me. And I think without it, it's very difficult to be an academic because there's a lot of uh, judgment and failure and so it's like just not a it's not a job in which one gets an enormous amount of positive reinforcement so you really have to like doing it
2: and was that driven by looking at a particular branch of economics or particular topic areas and thinking i want to discover things that people don't know in this topic area or a more broad ranging oh i can enter this field and i can discover all sorts of things across a wide range of topics
3: more of the second and i actually think i would go back to a time when i was in high school and working on research projects that had nothing to do with economics and were, of course, were distant from the kinds of work that people do in writing real papers. But I remember some paper I wrote in high school about canals, and I went and I got a bunch of data from the Historical Society, and I had some theory about canals and railroads that I've sort of now blocked out. But there was this moment of kind of thinking, well, I have a perspective on this. I think I've learned something that other people didn't put together here. And even though I, I have never gone back to be a canal researcher, I remember that feeling of, I, you know, I've learned something as being really special.
2: As you started getting into it, what was your relationship to writing? Like there's the discovery part, the research part, and then there's the actual sitting down and writing part. What was your connection to that? How did you feel about it, I guess?
3: I like that part. It is the part I like the second best. <laughs> the part in the middle where you have to do all the robustness checks and the part where people yell at you—those are the parts I, I don't like as so much. But I always liked the writing, partly because I think, unlike the discovery, which I find very hard, the writing part I find very easy. It's probably part of the way I've sort of structured my current profession is it's very heavy in writing. I'm um, not just academic writing, but all kinds of writing. I like the part where you try to explain what you found to other people. That kind of almost translation or explanation part of the writing, I like.
2: Now you're writing at a very high metabolism. I mean, I don't know related to what you were doing before, but certainly with the newsletter.
3: I write a lot of words. Yes.
2: <laughs> yeah, you write a lot of words. You said you like writing. Do you find that when you sit down, you can just throw out a draft and then come back and edit it? Or do you work sort of slowly line by line? How, what's, what's your process like?
3: So- it's very different for academic writing and non-academic writing. So for academic writing, most of the way that one produces a paper is you put together the tables and figures and then you write around those. And in some ways academic writing outside of the introduction to papers, it's just very rote. So once you have the tables, you just I just kind of sit down and write it. That part is very straightforward. For things like the newsletter, I think about an outline and I'll like sketch out sort of an outline of some points and I will do that over a fairly long like a few days you know I'll kind of percolate on what I want to do and I'll think about it in the shower and I'll kind of reflect on it when I run and then I'll come to the writing with a kind of pretty clear outline of how I want it to go and then I will just write it all the way through and then go back and edit a bit.
2: Uh, Do you have an external editor of some kind for the newsletter?
3: Yeah, I have, I have a copy editor, which is good because I'm not a very good speller or a grammar person or really any of those things. And then I have a another person who sort of reads everything and does some kind of slightly more conceptual editing and who I work with a little more closely on things like that.
2: The sort of drive to write outside of academia, when did that come up for you? I mean, obviously, Expecting Better was like a big encapsulation of that drive, but were you all along thinking, oh, maybe I would like to move in that direction or did it happen all at once?
3: Expecting Better was a big shift in that. I did some of that kind of writing before and it is partly driven, largely driven by feeling really that economics has a lot to say about decision-making and about how you run your life. So I think much of the sort of early stuff I was doing was more about and of using economic tools to make better decisions. And then when I wrote Expecting Better, that was much more about data and how we think about causality and statistics and correlation. And so that became a bigger piece of the writing. But I'm not sure there was much of a particular impetus before the book, other than just, this is a kind of way of interacting with the world or, or helping people understand the world that's a bit like teaching, but to a slightly broader audience.
2: In economics, in academia, what is the sort of view around you towards writing things for a general audience?
3: Broadly negative. Um, I mean, I, <laughs> it's, I think it depends on a little bit on what you say, and I think it's evolved over time. You know, it's always been true that economists have written a column for the New York Times, but much more like I'm writing a column about other people's research or, you know, here is a paper that came out in the NBER and here's what it says. And so that's been something that people have done. The thing that I do, which is, of course, very different than that in a lot of ways, is very unusual. I think it's become less unusual since I started doing it. So in the past decade, I think economists have had a, a have more frequently tried to engage with a broader audience. But when I first did this, there was an enormous amount of skepticism and an enormous amount of like, I can't believe you're doing this. This is so weird. Like that's not what we hired you to do and I think it was particularly complicated because I was a junior faculty member so it was it was like one thing to do this when you have tenure it's another thing to do this when you're just supposed to be like, you know, nose to the grindstone publishing papers in academic journals then to be like, well actually I'm spending some time doing this other thing was a bit odd.
2: And how did that manifest? Did it manifest <laughs> with negative consequences? <laughs> yeah.
3: Yeah, it did. It did. You know, I so I at the time I wrote the, the Expecting Better, I was at the University of Chicago at the Booth School. Mm-hmm. And I got turned down for tenure after the book came out. And it's sort of a somewhat complicated experience, which was not entirely about the book, but was also not entirely not about the book.
2: Which way does it cut that the book was very successful? Does that help or hurt?
3: Expecting Better has become much more successful over time than it was initially. So it was a somewhat successful book when it came out, but not like it has become, I sell many more books now than I did in like the first year of the book came out, which is not that typical for a nonfiction book. So yeah, I think as the book has become more successful, perhaps now it's a little bit more like, oh, okay, I see like why you would want to do that. I think at the time it was like, you sort of wrote this moderately successful and very controversial book and like, for what, you know, like. <laughs> So I think that was, that was more the attitude.
2: Was there a time when you regretted it at all? Like when you didn't get tenure, did you think maybe I should have done that?
3: Definitely. I mean, of course, I think it is only in the last, really like the last couple of years that when people say like, was it a good decision to write the book? I will reflect on it and say like all in, yes. But it took a very long time to get to that point because of course, you know, I spent more or less my whole life up to that point trying to get tenure at this job And then I didn't, it felt like, boy, maybe I should have waited a year. Maybe I should have waited to write this book. Maybe I should not have written this book. And of course, now when I look at it, I think, okay, well, that was the gateway into a version of my job that is much better suited for what I want to do and a university that is more supportive of the kind of person I want to be. So I think all of those things worked out well in the end, but it was a very challenging period.
2: How did you get through that period?
3: I think mainly by recognizing that in the end, it's just my job. You know, at that point I had a spouse that I like, I still like him, and we had a kid and she was healthy and, you know, doing great. And I think there was a feeling of like, okay, at the end of the day, I'm going to go home to them. And even at the end of the day where the guy comes into your office and says, you know, I'm sorry, we voted on your tenure case. It was close, but you didn't get it. Even at the end of that day, you get to go home. To your kid and you know that's very that's very lucky so i think trying to keep that perspective was sort of the only way forward and also i just really didn't want to cry in front of them yeah that was the other thing yeah there's <laughs> a, a little bit of a of a sort of a feeling of like you gotta just like fake it till you make it just pretend that you're fine um even when you're not
2: you must have been getting some sense even it's it's more popular now but of how people were responding. To the book and what people were getting out of the book were you hearing from people
3: yeah i was and that was very good and i think that that was very positive and it remains very positive and i think that that part of what has been very has made me feel very good about expecting better is i think that book in particular reaches a lot of women and a lot of families when they are just really anxious and in the middle of a period of life that is just like really scary and you're not sure how to navigate it and you feel out of control and i think that the book For many people is a way to have some more control or also to just feel more confident and more comfortable. And I hear a lot of that and I heard a lot of that even early on and that was really great.
2: You mentioned that it was also very controversial. I came to it probably later. So what was your first experience of this is going to be controversial or there's going to be some resistance to this?
3: The the main thing that happened is just in the book, I talk about the question of like, could you have some alcohol in pregnancy? And I talk about the idea that like, even though drinking a lot is very dangerous, that when we look at, you know, small amounts of alcohol consumption, it doesn't seem to have negative impacts. And just that one thing, that one piece of this became a big sort of, it, it took over a lot of the discussion of the book. And that was partly, I think, something that if I had to do again, I would have changed how we talked about that early on. Not that I would have changed anything I said in the book, I would have just changed how I talked about it like on television. And I think it just it sort of took over a lot of the narrative around the book in a way that ultimately, that actually hasn't been like a huge piece of what people get out of this book. You know, I think it's something that people appreciate. And it's a part of the book they find interesting, but it isn't actually the main takeaway from the book sort of overall.
2: Yeah. It's funny that you say that because it is one of the main things that I took away from the book. Okay. There you go. (laughs) But only in the sense that the way I came to the book was that my wife and I found out that she was pregnant somewhat into her pregnancy later than you would expect and had not perhaps been treating it as if she were. So Mm -hmm. I read the book and the idea that these absolute binary prescriptions that you would get from people about what you should and should not do actually existed across this wide spectrum of risks, and that actually that question was really hard to study, that's what stuck with me. I must have told dozens of people, both like read this book and also think about how hard it is to study alcohol and pregnancy. You cannot have a control group. You cannot have a group that you just feed alcohol and then see what the outcome is. Like It's just incredibly difficult. It requires all these surveys, et cetera. So I feel like even though that shouldn't be the main thing you take away, I didn't take away. Oh, you could just do whatever you want, but it was actually a, a tremendous relief.
3: No, I think that's. I think that's great, and I. I also feel that the thing you said about taking away that this is hard to study, or that a lot of these things that people are are hearing as black and white. In fact, when you dive into the data, they're way more complicated than that and they're actually it's not that easy to study. That is something that is a takeaway from the book. It's just that that's a takeaway. You can take that away from that that comes up all the time, you know. That's not just that one example. This is a sort of like goes across the entire almost everything that we try to study in pregnancy.
2: And where did that come from the idea that you were going to sort of dive into these studies and try to understand this topic in particular? You know, was that personal to you at first?
3: Oh, Yeah. I mean, I think that was, it was almost exclusively personal at first, right? So I got into like being pregnant is a very, was for me, like in some ways, like a very absorbing experience. And I wanted to understand some of these things and I wanted to understand them both for behavioral reasons, but also just because I wanted to understand them because I'm an academic and I'm interested in how literature works. So I think there are pieces of the book that were very much like, I learned about this because I needed to make a decision on our own. So when we talk about like prenatal testing, that was like, I just did all of that just so we could make a choice. And then with some of these other pieces, there's more of like, I went deeper than I would have needed to if all I wanted to do was reassure myself that like some coffee was fine. And partly that was because I found the data really interesting and then sort of started thinking about how to write about it. And that was kind of where the book came from.
2: I also, I'll always remember Deli Meats. Deli Deli Meats was a big part of it. Because the lesson there that that the thing that they're telling you to avoid is last year's problem. Like yeah. that really resonated with me. It's like the
3: TSA and the shoes, right? <laughs> exactly. It's like, you know, but then there are some things that they never tell you to avoid. Like there was a big listeria outbreak in ice cream. Nobody ever says avoid ice cream. <laughs>
2: I do Deli meats are much more, uh, they're easier to like- They're easier, right. You don't want to after. tell pregnant
3: ladies <laughs> to, to avoid ice cream.
2: <laughs> and when, when you did feel the sort of controversy around- the portion of it that was, you know, quote unquote controversial, what did you sort of learn about yourself in terms of how you respond to that type of controversy?
3: The piece of that controversy I found most frustrating was the same as some of the pieces I have found in all the other controversial stuff that I've done, which is the credentialism aspects of them. So there was much of that, much of the discussion of this surrounded the fact that I'm not a doctor. So there is a way to interact with the data and to say, you know, well, I think that here is a different study you should have talked more about, or I like this study rather than this other study. And there was kind of none of that. There was no, like, I don't like your interpretation of the data. There was no, like, let's dive into, you know, this study is better than you think it is, or whatever was this. It was nothing like that. It was just, you're not a doctor. And that part was very frustrating. And I think that that more than anything else, I found I was just very frustrated.
2: It's funny because I have a friend who's a doctor and he he's always pointing out, you know, when was the last time your doctor dipped into the academic literature? Like a really good doctor probably has, you know, kept up with everything. But on any given question, there's so much new research. How would they possibly, even the doctor, if you did have that credential, how would that actually assist you if you weren't looking at the studies?
3: Right. Exactly. There's no secret information. There's just what we know from the data and what you know from the sort of physical aspects of being a doctor. And so I think if I had been saying, you know, well, there's a better way to get the baby out. I mean, that would have been like, look, we have this specialized training in how to get the baby out. That's true. But to say, you know, I'm not going to trust you on this study about the relationship between caffeine and miscarriage Because your training is in statistical methods that comes out of a different field, that was the part that was frustrating.
2: But this is so, I don't want to jump ahead necessarily to the COVID stuff because I do want to talk about that. But this is so relevant to everything that's going on right now in terms of there is a line somewhere. Like, let me put it this way when I think about expecting better and reading it, you were saying to me, follow the data. If someone gives you a piece of advice, you can actually go look at the data and you can figure out, is there a spectrum of advice there? What's the risk? But then, If you encourage that too much, then you get into anyone can follow the data without the necessarily, even the statistical training to understand the papers. And so there's credentialism somewhere in there. Where's the line?
3: It's complicated. And people will often ask me, you know, how can I do this on my own? And I think, unfortunately, sometimes my answer is like, well, I, you know, I've spent my entire life evaluating studies that's all i do basically every day for the whole for the whole day and so it's actually really hard to say how should you know if you should trust this other than some big picture things like randomized studies are better bigger studies are better than smaller studies think about the sources of bias you know there's kind of some like buzzwords but it's hard to explain how it is that when i look at a study sometimes i can just be like yeah that's garbage Mm -hmm. And I can see, or that one's really good. And people are like, well, how did you know? It's like, I don't know. Like appendix table five has the following. Like there's just things you learn to look for. And it's really because you do it all the time. I do think that there are some, some of what's come up in COVID is that there are some places where the data actually isn't that hard to evaluate. Where in fact, like everyone would agree on the interpretation of some study, like what's the size of the impact on of vaccines, so like things like that, where there's kind of very widespread agreement. And there, I think it's, it's in some sense, you could say, yeah, you can have your own read of the data, but every expert's read of the data is identical, or virtually every expert.
0: Support for long form this week comes from listening. The voices sounded totally natural and human to me. This listening app might just transform how you consume reading material and you can give it a shot yourself risk-free. Now normally you get a 2 week free trial, but listeners of long form get a whole month free. Go to listening.com/longform or use the code longform at checkout listening. Your life just got a lot easier.
2: So the first book for me was really involved in these questions, these like data driven questions before the baby is born. And then the next two books, you have a child there. And then you're looking at these, these different kinds of advice questions or evaluating how you should treat your child and what school and these, these sorts of questions. And it feels like there was a big shift there in the approach. And I'm wondering how you think about that shift or if you felt they were like exactly along the same continuum.
3: I think of the second book of Crib Sheet as really just a continuation of Expecting Better. So they're both really data forward. They're both really chronological. They say, okay, you're not pregnant yet. Okay, now how do you get, how do you use data in getting pregnant? And then now you're pregnant. Now you're going through the trimesters. Now you have the baby. Okay, you're in the delivery room there's some stuff you have to decide. Now you're breastfeeding. Now you're so... And and in a sense, for many of those questions, it's both the case that they're pretty widely shared. So a lot of the questions in early parenting, we all have sort of similar ones, sleep, breastfeeding. You are not all exactly the same, but many of the similar things. And then when I wrote the books, the books are really just very data focused. Let's go through the data on this. I think a difference is for some of this stuff in crib sheet, which is the, the sort of parenting piece, you start to get the feel of like, okay, well, actually your preferences are pretty important. So that in pregnancy, the data is often kind of enough. And in the early parenting stuff, you'll get some really good data, but then you have to overlay, you know, what's important to you, what other constraints are you facing? But like, basically, there's no secret reason you have to do one thing or, or the other. The third book, The Family Farm, I think is actually quite different because when I got to this older kid phase, everybody's questions are very different. A lot of the things people are grappling with are I'm facing these occasional unexpected big decisions. I don't know how to make them. And my life is totally dominated by logistics in a way that I can't quite understand. And I find that I've woken up In a lifestyle that I didn't exactly intend. And I'm not sure how we got here. And why are we going to so many birthday parties? How could there be so many birthday parties? So that book really is a kind of like, okay, step back. You need to be more deliberate about the way you're making decisions and about the way you're structuring your life. And there is some data, but the book is much less data forward. It's much more about structures and decision making and trying to grapple with what I think is a fundamentally different problem, which is parenting kids who are. Big,
2: Yeah. Well, so many of the conclusions across so many topics are some variation on there's some data here. It's not great. So here's how you should approach the decision making. But is that frustrating for you after writing the first two books to have to take that approach?
3: Yes, it is. It's very
1: frustrating.
3: I mean, I think it, it has been much harder for me actually this part of parenting. is more rewarding in some ways. I like, you know, my kids are more fun to interact with as they get bigger, but I struggle a lot with the feeling of, you know, all I can do is be thoughtful about this decision. I cannot generate a, you know, secret option C possibility, you know, when we're facing some constraints. And I think that's uh that's, yeah, I find, that, I find that challenging. I sort of wish that the data was better, but then also it's actually not that there's kind of almost no data with a lot of these things because it would, it's so specific to your kid.
2: When people write about you, they always include a line that's sort of like her audience is upper middle class coastal people or upper yeah. middle class white coastal people. Yeah, sure. How do you view your audience vis-a-vis those kind of statements? Like who is your audience to you?
3: So I think the audience is actually quite different across the three books. So I actually think the audience for Expecting Better is reasonably broad. So don't think it's just white coastal elites. There are people on Instagram, which I realize is not also not a representative sample, but just (laughs) I think that there is a broader audience for that book because those experiences are so shared, right? Because the experience of being pregnant is really similar it's not similar for everybody but it's like it's like a shared experience and so i think that makes that book a little bit more accessible to a broader set of people i think the third book has more of this kind of audience that people say that I have because, you know, there's like some worksheets and stuff. But I actually, I find that very unfortunate in some ways because I think that the idea that somehow good decision making should only be the purview of coastal elites. And then like, be, you know, people with more constraints should not have good decision making. In fact, I think if anything, you know, making good decisions out of your constraints should be more valuable if you have more constraints.
2: Well, that leads me to wonder, this is dangerous territory for any author. So I hesitate to even ask, but like, is there any way you sometimes see that you can perceive your audience interpreting this book in ways that you kind of think, ugh, that's not what I meant? That's not who I wanted to be reading this book?
3: I mean, not, not really. I don't know. I'm happy to have people read my books and take what they <laughs> can from them. I mean, there are times with the, with the last book where I think, you know, people sometimes are like, well, this book is too, you know, it's too tiring. Like, I don't want to do all your stuff. And I sometimes want to be like, you know, why don't you try like one thing? yeah, I get it. Like you don't want to do everything, but like maybe try like one thing, try like one thinking a little bit more about one decision or or sort of a way in to kind of just try one of the pieces of it.
2: Well, maybe a different way to ask it is I feel like there's a moment in Family Firm where you, you talk about, and this was a question that, that comes up for me all the time in life and also in reading the book, was this question of like, what outcomes do you want for your children as they get older? And there's a certain set of, outcomes for which there is sort of more data around achievement and uh, getting into college and this sort of thing. But then there's a broader set of outcomes that you want for your children in terms of how they exist in the world and how they interact with people and how happy they are. Do you feel like one of those is easier to sort of approach than the other?
3: It is much easier to approach the achievement pieces of this because they are measured. And it is easier to answer the question, what does the data say about the impact of blah on test scores? You can't always answer that, but at least we can measure test scores and obesity. Those are like the two main things you can measure. And so if your goal is to like raise a kid who is not obese and has high test scores, it's not like you can definitely achieve that. But there's better data on, you know, how the ways that we parent contribute to those things. In some ways, I think that a lot of the writing in family firm, though, is speaking to people who have thought of those kinds of outcomes as the thing that they're trying to achieve, and saying, like, wait a minute, actually, you might might want to think a little bit more about whether those are really the reasons to do some of the things you want to do, and kind of so. For me, like the the best example of that is the extracurricular discussion. Hmm. And then I think a lot of a lot of people and I talk to some of them will tell me things like, you know, I want my kids to do this extracurricular because that's the thing that I think, you know, I heard that that's what gets you Dartmouth, you know, like Dartmouth looking for horn players this year. And like, I think that the point of the extracurricular discussion when you dial into the into the data is like, actually, yeah, extracurriculars are great, but they're great because they help kids have a better sense of belonging and because they're an opportunity for a social environment that's different than the social environment that they have at school. And that can be really helpful and really scaffolding if kids are struggling, but you actually do not need to be a horn player for that. And if anything, it's probably really important that the thing you're doing is something you're good at and something you enjoy, not necessarily being good at, but like something that you like. And so it's an argument for, in fact, thinking about extracurriculars as recreation, as something that is a thing that you're doing for your kids' socio-emotional health more than that it's something that you're doing to make them achieve. And that's a really different frame that I think most people are coming into their extracurricular activities with.
2: Was it hard for you to get into the mode of being someone who people look to for advice on these questions? They want to know what you think about a topic like that?
3: The piece I find very uncomfortable is when people want to know what I do. So I am happy to tell people how I think about something, and I'm in some ways happy to give people advice. The question that people ask that I don't have an easy time engaging with is, well, just tell me what extracurriculars your kids do, which it's like, I feel like the whole point of everything I do is like, no, actually, like you shouldn't necessarily do the things (laughs) that my kids do. Like that's like literally the entire point. So that part, I'm I'm not good at engaging with that.
2: But your kids do pop up sure. in the books. I'm always interested when people write about family members or kids. Do you have a particular strategy around that in terms of what, how much you will reveal or not reveal? Like where are the lines there for you?
3: So my husband is... A much more private person. And he reads everything to sort of say like, this is okay. You know, like he basically reads everything and decides what is reasonable about the kids. He's happy to have me to whatever I want about him. So I, I sort of try not to talk about things I think my kids would not like me to talk about. And with the both crib sheet and family from, I had my older kid read it herself or read the parts that she was in herself to get her approval.
2: And what is her relationship to being in the books at this point? Does she care? I think
3: she doesn't care. I don't think my kids care at all about it. Like, they're just, they're not engaged with this. <laughs> the thing they like, the, the absolutely the best, my kids are really into audiobooks. They yeah. love listening to audiobooks. And so I recorded the new edition of Expecting Better, and then I recorded a family firm. I did the recording. And so the thing, my the only time I've seen my son even remotely excited about this was when he got that on his Audible. And then he came down and just played over and over the part where like, this is the family firm and I'm the author, Emily Oster. And he would just come <laughs> down and play that over and over and over again in the kitchen. <laughs> that's it.
2: That sounds fun.
0: Yeah, it was great.
2: <laughs> I want to talk a little bit more about the book. So there's a kind of like rubric in the, the new book, in the family firm, that's like the four F's parents should frame a problem, they should do fact-finding, final decision, and then follow-up, yes. four Fs. When you're writing this type of book, did you start with that premise, like that premise exists in your life, or you sat down and said, I need to organize what I'm going to say in this book?
3: It's something in between those things. So this idea that there's a decision framework and it has a set of sort of concrete steps of this type, that is inherent in like how we run stuff in our household. I don't think that prior to this book, I would have said, it's not like we had this four Fs and we were going through the four Fs and I just like wrote down the four Fs. It was like we had a way of encountering the world. And then when I came to write it, I thought about how would I structure that so someone else could replicate it or could do a version of this. And then that is sort of where the framework came from. So it's almost like I tried to generate a framework based on what we were already doing.
2: I feel like the book would be in some sense like shelved with like parental advice books about how to raise your children. But how much of the book is about how to raise your children versus how to relieve your own parental anxieties around raising your children?
3: I think it's a lot of the second. In fact, I also think it's a lot of how to get along with your partner if you're partnering with somebody else. I mean, there's pieces that are like, here's some stuff about how you could do things and here's some advice about child raising, but it's much more a book about how to encounter these problems and how to work through them with somebody else than about like, here's how to do this, or here's the right kind of parent to be.
2: So in the book, in the, I guess the conclusion or the closing might be the epilogue. I'm not sure what, what it is. You talk about how COVID hits while you're writing this book. Can you tell me how did that affect the book itself? Were you already too far along for it to kind of like have an impact on the book?
3: No. So the book, like a draft of it, was done before COVID hit, thank goodness. Otherwise, it definitely wouldn't exist. But then, the sort of summer of 2020, I did a lot of revisions and the writing I had been doing about COVID, particularly around sort of some of the structured decision making stuff that I wrote at the beginning. You can sort of see how that overlaps with the book. And I think they interacted a little bit with each other. So there's a sort of piece of it that's like that was kind of influenced by COVID, particularly around which is how I talked about it.
2: And had you already decided to start the newsletter?
3: I started the news. The first issue of the newsletter is like February twenty twenty. There's like one pre COVID issue, mm. maybe two. Mm-hmm. It's about Zika. Oh, yeah. and then and then there's and then the next newsletter is like ah COVID.
2: <laughs> so tell me about how you decided to approach that.
3: I mean, I considered not writing about it early on, but then it was like, oh, okay, I'm going to write about COVID. And and then I wrote one thing, and then I was like, oh, probably won't write anymore. But then, of course, everything just... If I wanted to write a newsletter that was responsive to the questions I was getting from parents, literally all of them were about COVID and how to think about COVID as we got into like March. and And then that became a lot of what I was writing about, and then that was what people wanted to hear, and then it built off of there.
2: But again, I wonder, how does that feel for you to be a person who this world-changing, life-changing pandemic is happening, and you have people in your inbox asking you, what should I do?
3: Terrifying. I mean, that part of this has been really... I feel like I have helped people. You know, I wrote a post in May that was about, like, should my kids go back to daycare and should I see my grandparents? And it was all about sort of how you should think about that. I think that post helped a lot of people. And people have told me, like, that gave me confidence to do this or not do this or, you know, what, like, that was really useful. And so I feel like I have been helpful. But at the same time, it is a very different amount of responsibility than I have had before to other people's health and wellness.
0: fox creative
3: this is advertiser content from 26.2 team milk
1: and their new docu-series running sucks is running the worst yeah do you love it do you hate it i hate it so much i hate it so freaking much
2: the new york times has written not one but i believe two different stories that concern like the controversy around your writing around COVID. yeah was the atlantic piece about traveling was that the first what was the first time that you thought this is going to be vitriolic this is going to be intense
3: It was the other Atlantic piece. So in the fall of 2020, I wrote something called Schools Aren't Super Spreaders, which was about schools and how they aren't super spreaders, which turned out to be right. And that was sort of the first, there was like a lot of vitriolic push around that. And then there was the second Atlantic piece in the spring, which was about like unvaccinated kids and vaccinated grandparents. Which I actually was more, I found the reaction to that piece more surprising than there. I knew that when I wrote that schools were not super spreaders, like people would be upset about it. Maybe I didn't know how upset they would be, but like, yeah, you know, I kind of understood that that was a controversial position. When I wrote the thing in, about the unvaccinated kids in the spring, I don't know. I just, I realized that sounds dumb, but I didn't think that was gonna be very controversial.
2: Can you describe what the controversy was around that one?
3: So the issue is that the piece said, it's sort of in terms of serious illness, the risks for your unvaccinated children are like the same as vaccinated grandparents. And so the premise was like, when you think about, you know, doing stuff this summer and like vacationing, you know, you shouldn't leave your kids behind because they are not vaccinated. And, you know, the headline wasn't very good. The headline was a little more aggressive than I would have said, but I think people people just got very angry and sort of with the idea that like you're being dismissive and like, you know, you're going to encourage people to... I don't know, do unsafe things and be anti-vaxxers or whatever it was. It just got like totally. And then there were many people who were like, this is wrong. This is like a totally ridiculous thing to say.
2: The analogy It's The analogy,
3: exactly. That that's not a good analogy.
2: You wrote a little thing in the newsletter about it where you said sort of like, I would have used a different, different analogy yeah. possibly. Do you still feel that way?
3: Yeah, I still feel that I think the piece would have been more impactful if it had been clearer what I meant. Basically, what I was saying was that in terms of serious illness, these risks are comparable in terms of whether you get COVID at all. Vaccination protects you from getting COVID. And so the risk of spread was different. I said that in the piece, but you had to read the whole thing. And it's like 800 words. And if you only read the headline and the poll quote that they put on the Twitter from The Atlantic, you wouldn't get that information. And so I did feel that because, unfortunately, many people only read the headline or the poll quote on Twitter, that I could have been like the piece could have been more cautious or we could have been more cautious about some of those things. And that's what I said in the, in the newsletter. And I, I stand by that in the sense that I think that piece could have been more impactful with less controversy if we just like I had written it slightly differently.
2: Did the controversy that you experienced back when Expecting Better came out prepare you in any way for this environment or is this a completely different environment?
3: No, it was, it, 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 they were similar. I mean, I think the the last 18 months have been way more consistent. You know, this controversy about expecting better lasted for like three weeks. And this is like sort of been 18 months of kind of being a person who is slightly more public, who is saying things that are somewhat more controversial, where people yell at me a lot. They yell at me in, you know, different ways. I think I'm going to get yelled at today because I have something like, you know, I, now I've kind of like more, I'm like more accustomed to like, okay, things that I say are going to be dissected. More, but it is not dissimilar to the initial expecting better controversy in some ways.
2: Do you try to stay away from it? I don't want to like keep throwing in your face the no. controversy, but because I, I find that it can be kind of random. Like I'll read something of yours, like in the newsletter, and I'll maybe send it to someone and say, this is with the question we were having, like about schools or about travel or whatever it is. And then if you go on Twitter, you might discover there is an epidemiologist with a 20 tweet thread. That's sort of like she should be a pariah for this. Like she's killing people. Yeah, it's killing like, people yeah, at a level that? that is extremely intense, but also can feel a little random, at least to me, that it's going to come from somewhere, but you don't actually know where. Do you try to avoid those responses?
3: I try mostly to avoid them. It's hard because I'm sort of tempted to read them and see what people think. And sometimes I try to read things to like get a sense of what people are are saying and how they're feeling. But I do much less reading of the comments than I did early on because I found that eventually I just get like mad. And that's not like a productive way to, to interact. And it affects, I think it affects how I think about what I write. And I would like what I write to be the things that I think are true, not the things I think will avoid people being angry.
2: I could see a world in which it would cause you to to just not wanna write about these things at all, to just pull back from it. But why doesn't it cause that reaction?
3: I think partly because I have a very short memory. That's kind of my most significant protective feature is just that I don't like I don't remember how bad it's not that I don't remember that it happened, but I just don't remember that I feel bad. Some of these moments like I'll just feel really bad. But then like a few days later, I will have forgotten that I felt bad and then I'll be willing to do it again. (laughs) That
2: seems like a good skill to have. It's like why people have a
3: second kid, right? Because it's like, it's so horrible when you're giving birth and then afterwards you're like, it wasn't that bad. It was basically fine.
2: (laughs) Then there's another part of this too, where you set up this COVID school tracking project. So what drove you to actually engage with research on this topic?
3: I felt like there was no data and it felt very important that we had the data. And also, you know, kind of coming back to some of the stuff about Expecting Better, like I find the idea of having data about this very useful. And so at this point, really what we're doing is tracking schools, not so much COVID, but just tracking like school reopens and trying to study the long-term impacts of that. And that's something that I wanted to engage with because I like data and because I think the data is, is useful and because nobody else was doing it.
2: And does the fact that you're also engaged with these bigger questions and the public on them, does that help or hurt the actual like studying part of it?
3: I think it's actually more helpful than I would have thought. So I think in in some ways it's complicated because it means that, you know, people perceive some of the things I say through the lens of like this person is an advocate, but it opens doors in ways that they would not be otherwise. You know, some people who work in schools know who I am. It is meant that they will write us back when we ask them for data. You know, we managed to amass a data set on school reopening that I think is, you know, far exceeds what the Department of Education in the US was able to do because of some of the contacts that I built up, partly because I was kind of doing this stuff publicly. So I think it's a it is double-edged, but broadly positive.
2: We talked earlier about who the audience for the books was or is, but then now you have the newsletter. Now you have this sort of broader megaphone you'll write for the Atlantic or Slate or whoever. Who is it you're trying to reach or is there a group that you're trying to reach?
3: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think at this point, like I'm I'm basically writing for the people who read the newsletter. I think that's a lot of parents it's still the sort of core audience. There is really people who are parents mostly of smaller kids. And then I think it's also I'm also writing for some audience of kind of policy people who read some of the stuff I write and not and not others. And I have found that the only way I can be successful doing this is to just write the things that are on my mind and not worry very much about curating I'm just going to kind of like do me. And while that's working for this, I'm going to keep doing it. And if it stops working, I'll do something different.
2: Do you ever engage with the critics?
3: Yeah, I will sometimes engage with people on, on Twitter. I will sometimes try to engage with them in other ways. Again, I find sometimes it is difficult because what I would really like to do is engage on the substance of some aspect of some data rather than engaging on the kind of like, what kind of training do you have? Or, you know, what about this one anecdote or whatever? And it's not that, you know, not that everybody who disagrees with me wants to engage on those things by any means, but I think it's hard to have those conversations.
2: I read somewhere, I think it was an interview with the cut, maybe that you perceive yourself more as a writer now than as maybe not more as, as a writer, as an academic, but that your job is as a writer. When do you think that transition happened?
3: Sometime during COVID. Maybe, well, maybe like a, that transition began with the second book or the decision to write the third book, and then more during COVID. I, I think I'm lucky that because I have a job as an academic, and because, you know, at this stage of, of kind of where I'm in my career, I can have some flexibility that like there are still papers. Like I released an NBR working paper today with data and tables and regressions and so on. And I, I, you know, that's always been a really important part of my life and one I do not want to lose even as I do more of this kind of other kind of writing
2: does it change your day to day that you're it just
3: means I, yeah I spend a lot of time writing uh, and, and less time researching
2: maybe you should write a book about how to write so productively
3: <laughs> just type really fast and don't worry about your spelling that'll be like chapter one spelling <laughs> is for suckers
2: <laughs> all right well thank you Emily thank you very much for being on the thank show thank you really so appreciate much it.
3: this is a treat thank you
2: that's it for this week's long form podcast thank you to emily oster for taking the time to talk to me her new book is called the family firm her newsletter is called parent data thanks to our editor gabriella Saldivia, to our intern susan peterson to my co-host max linsky and aaron lammer and to Mailchimp. thank you for listening we'll see you next week